computer. All right, five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game, and this is On the Record with Jerry Trippiano, our producer, Dave D'Agostino, behind the scenes tonight, and he's got me handling the intro this evening. And before we introduce our guest for episode 327, I want to thank our 54,000-plus faithful subscribers from 74 countries, grassroots to MLB front offices. Because of your support, we are the newest podcast network on the iHeartRadio's powerful podcast stream. So after the show, please give us five stars and write a comment because we battle the analytics of the podcast world, much like we do in Major League Baseball and all the other sports. With that said, we're going to talk to a legend tonight, one of the great sports writers America has known, Bob Ryan, longtime sports writer for the Boston Globe. You've seen him on ESPN. If there's anybody who has a grasp on everything concerning the NBA. It is the legendary Bob Ryan. Robert, how are you? Doing very well, Jerry. Thank you. Nice to be with you. You're looking good. Thank you for the time. And how many years in the business? Started as a summer intern at the Boston Globe in 1968. I covered my first NBA game for the Boston Celtics as opening day in 1969. And I did officially retire from full-time duty 2012 after the London Olympics, but I do continue to write for the Boston Globe on every other Sunday basis. You can't let go, can you? No, I, I like having my hand in it. I still feel I have something to offer. And of course, I have the old guy, you know, my greatest contribution generally are uh, putting, trying to put things in some historical perspective, if you will. But that doesn't mean I ignore what's going on today. I, I'm not wedded or embedded or, or in the past. But I, I respect the past and, and and try to make sense out of how we have evolved in all of sports. So can we start from a historical standpoint? Could you ever imagine what we have today as the NBA back when you first started? No. When I started with the NBA, it was a at that time, it was a 14 team league. And it just began to expand in the mid 60s from what the league I first grew up as a fan, an eight or nine team league. And it was a 14-team league when I started covering. And by the time I, I got out in, in 2012, it, it had got approached 30. And uh, it, it was it had gone from a mom-and-pop enterprise to a major international circumstance. And it expanded even more now. You know that uh, the uh, rosters released for the 2023-24 season have 125 international players. And this is an NBA that did not exist, obviously, when I started. And it speaks to the growth of the sport, the popularity of the sport, the second most popular international sport behind soccer. Can you recall who was the first international player to make yes. an impact in the in fact, NBA? I was thinking about this yesterday. Someone should reach out to him uh, that's actually working full time. Maybe not me. Georgi Gluchkov was a six Come foot again? Eight Bulgarian, oh. Bulgarian for yeah. the Suns. I believe it was 84, 85, but it's in that mid-80s era. One year, average, you know, six, seven points a game. And the funny thing about that is he washed out after one year, Jerry, remains the only Bulgarian that has ever played in the NBA. All these other Middle Europeans have come along and great when, you know, headed by course now by the two-time reigning MVP, Nikola Jokic. But 
he was a Bulgarian. I, I just find that so amusing that a Bulgarian, that sport does not thrive in Bulgaria. It has, it has thrived in many other Middle Eastern, I mean, Middle European countries. But he was the first one. And it was he was a source of fascination. I'm sure I was one of the many who wrote a column about him. It was such an extraordinary circumstance. He went back home after a year, but he was the first one. Could you pick out from the commissioners or the administrative people, who gets the credit for the growth of the NBA? Well, Jerry, I mean, it's certainly uh, David Stern. But David Stern, in conjunction with the head of FIBA, Boris Stankovic, because it was Boris, and they, they became quite friendly. Boris Stankovic was the head of FIBA, the International Basketball Association, outside of the United States, all the, all the, other, all the other countries. And it was Boris Stankovic who wanted to include the American professionals in the Olympics mm. because as a basketball devotee, he had played for his native Serbia. And he was a basketball junkie who grew up into the commissioner of FIBA. He wanted to raise the bar to show the rest of the world where they wanted to go, where they needed to go. And the best way to do that was to put the American professionals in their face and have them play them and find out what it was really like. And, that is the turning point in all international basketball history, the dream team. The dream team was not an American desire. The dream team, people have a mistaken impression that because we lost to the uh, to Soviet Union, which was still intact in 1988 in Seoul, that that was our, we, we, were, we had a revenge motive with, the, with those college kids that were coached by John Thompson. And oh no, that was not our goal. Boris Stankovic is the one who prodded us into coming into the competition. And as a matter of fact, when FIBA voted internationally to allow the United States in, we voted against it <laughs> originally, but it was we lost the vote. And so David Stern said, OK, all right, if you want us, here we come and and created a, and, and you know set the motion to have the dream team in 92. And I'm telling you that that was a turning point in all international basketball history. Somewhere out there, a little boy named Manu Ginobili was watching in Bahia Blanca, Argentina. A little boy named, named Dirk Nowitzki was watching in, in, in Germany uh, and many others. And they are the pioneers that set the tables in motion, where, think of motion, where we are today. Was there much fighting with the Players Association? We seem to have that a lot in, in, in sports today, but trying to get so. that dream team... Uh... What, what I don't that? recall anything there. I mean, the 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 obvious people stepped up. The you know mm -hmm. Bird match Bird was old then. Yeah, that was his last year of competition. But uh, the, the original group, you know, had the obvious people: uh, Patrick Ewing and 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 uh, you know and and on on and on and and Mike Magic Johnson and uh, Michael Jordan, of course, and, right. and Scotty Pippen and John Stockton and Carl Malone and Chris Mullen. Charles Barkley, who, by the way, Jerry, was the best player on the team in that competition. He really? took it. Yes. He intimidated the international community. He scared the, the crap out of people. I, he did. He he actually walked up one night in, in, in Barcelona and to when there were when other people from another team were watching a, a, a women's game, I think it was, or one of the other games, and said, and basically told him he was going to kick their ass. And and they worried about him. He, he scared. Remember, he's the one that said, you know, he got in a fight. With, he intimidated the, the poor guy from Angola. Uh, yeah, and he said he was worried about he's going to carry a spear, you know, nonsense, you know. But Barkley was the best player. The second best player in that competition was Chris Mullen. Bird was old. His back was killing him. Magic got hurt. 
John Stockton got hurt in the very first game in the, in, in the tournament in Americas and never played again. Uh, but we had such depth that we had enough to win, you know, handily. Can we go back even further? I, little, little Bobby Ryan growing up watching watching the sport. He, I, from what I remember, previous conversations, I think your father was was a big sports fan. Yes. And in into education and what have you. So the, the the fire was lit there to to be a writer. But let's go back even further when you were a fan. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm probably going to be wrong. But the first player I I can remember, let's say, having an athletic presence more so than than a lot of the other players was Elgin Baylor. You are so right. Elgin Baylor invented, in my is my belief, he's the most important individual person in the development of individual offensive maneuvers in the last 60 years. Elgin Baylor did things we hadn't seen before. Elgin Baylor was doing up and unders. Elgin Baylor was hesitations and and Elgin Baylor had different release points. Elgin Baylor had stop and goes. Elgin Baylor. Now, some people think it was Connie Hawkins as well. He waved the ball around. He was very athletic mm-hmm. in New York, but he wasn't Elgin Baylor. It was Elgin Baylor that invented modern individual basketball. Absolutely. I and and I I was discovered him in a sport magazine article. In, in of circa 1958, and 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 and, and that, I read about him, and I said, "Oh my God, I got to And and I I was infatuated with him without even seeing him. But then I finally got to see him. I said, "Oh my God, yeah, you're right. He is the pioneer, and he doesn't get enough credit. He's starting to fall into the cracks of history, and that is totally criminal. It should not happen. But you have hit it. It is Elgin Baylor, about six five, right? He wasn't really six, a five, big man. Very yeah. strong, excellent yeah. rebounder." And and, and he, but he had a vision and creativity factor that we had not seen in in basketball. He 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 was the pioneer. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking back to those days and and previous conversations we've had. You've really opened my eyes to something. There there is there is competition. There 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 are rivalries, and one of the great ones of the NBA. And I I, I hope this generation doesn't lose sight of it. The great Bill Russell. And Will Chamberlain, oh, and yeah. you, you, you blew me away when you told me about how many times they actually met in competition. Yes. Now people know in in a succeeding generation that Bird and Magic were a great rival, and they had the famous 1979 NCAA championship game won by Michigan State over Indiana State. First time they met uh, in that competition, they actually had met as as, as teammates in an international youth competition when mm. they were both in high school. But they they had not played against each other until that NCAA championship game. As professionals, as Bird with the Celtics and Magic as the Lakers in this great rivalry, they played 31 times. Russell and Chamberlain played. Are you ready? I know you're ready, folks. 142 times, okay. not including exhibitions. And in those days, they played upwards of 20 exhibitions. In those days, in the late 50s, early 60s, so let's say for the sake of argument, they may have played another half a dozen, 12 times, at least a dozen times in exhibitions. They played for competition 142 times. It is the greatest individual rivalry in, 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 in NBA history. Russell was unique in, in his abilities as far as his defensive skills. And, and again, something you've told me in the past, he, 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 came up with ability to block shots that nobody else could. He kept the ball in play. 
his idea was never to knock the ball into the third row and then flex his muscles and free into the camera the way so many people in this succeeding generations up to tonight, up sure in the first night of the NBA, do. He didn't do that. His goal was to start a fast break. So as Tom Heinsohn explained to me on, on several occasions when I was you know covering the Celtics and he was coach, that Russell would, he called it, pop the ball. He tried to pop the ball, not just smash the ball out of bounds, but pop it so either he could A, control it, or pop it to someone else to start a fast break. That was his number one desire, to start a fast break by blocking a shot, not to show off by knocking it into the third row, which, which so few people have ever emulated. So few. Yeah. We, we talk about Tom Brady as, as an ultimate winner and, and Michael Jordan. But can't the argument be made that Bill Russell was the ultimate winner in team sports? Let me put it and in, in, in encapsulate it. From 1955 to 1969, Bill Russell competed. His teams competed for 16 separate championships. Two NCAAs, 55-56, the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne and 13 NBA championships from 1957 to 1969. His teams, it just so happened to win 14 of them. Mm. And, then the, and one other, only diehard St. Louis Hawks fans from the 58 season will argue that they would have won if Russell hadn't been hurt in that series. They won. Bob Pettit, God bless him, who's still with us, by the way, had 50 points in game six, and that was a wonderful performance, and he's an all-time great player, yada, yada, except – if the Russell it was hurt and missing games in that series, the Celtics win another one. So the he won. He was beaten legitimately once, and that was in 1967 when Will Chamberlain and the 76ers outplayed the Celtics, and Russell was outplayed by Chamberlain one time in in, in all those years. What uh, what what made what made Russell the player that he was? A total package, Jerry. A, he was an athlete ahead of his time. As he once said to me, I could kick the rim. That's not a that's not a I, idle boast. Think about that. Number he he was extraordinarily talented. Uh six nine and two twenty-five with great takeoff, great out. He was a high jumper in college. He could do six nine. Untutored. Oh. Untutored. He wasn't a tutored jumper. He did six nine. He could run four forties. Uh, he was an extraordinary athlete, uh, way, way, way ahead of his time. And number one, and but he also had and, and, a, a intelligence. He, he was a psychologist. He didn't try to block every shot. He, uh, he he sized up with each game. Do I try to block the shot early, let the guy think he could do what he wants to do, and then with three minutes to go, he makes the same move, and I block the shot? Sometimes. Other times he said, I'm going to discourage this guy tonight. He's not going to get started. I'm blocking his first four shots. He had either he, – he was the greatest psychologist. And then the the competitive spirit. He wanted to win. He played to win. He, he played – and he played with teammates – that the package was extraordinary. It, it the, the two greatest unquestioned competitors, you know, just frightening competitors that just poured out of their body in the NBA that I ever experienced were Bill Russell and, and Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, as a six foot six guy, was was the most competitive guy of his type that, that, that we've ever known. No, there's no question. But Russell at six nine uh, was, was and with his physical gifts was right there. It's it's funny you mentioned that uh, Russell in the in the series against the then St. Louis Hawks was he not first the property and not, you know <laughs> uh, owned by the owned by his rights owned by the Hawks. Yes, uh, there's extraordinary machinations in the 1956 NBA draft. Uh, the Celtics were picking third, and and uh, the, long story short, 
they had to get uh, number two was Cincinnati and Rochester, excuse me, Rochester Royals. God knows before Lester Harrison was the owner and coach and, and he owned the arena in Rochester. Walter Brown was the owner of the Celtics and he, and he controlled the Boston garden and he was the creator of the ice capades. And so his, his deal with the, with, with uh, Lester Harrison, who was wary of the, the Russell wasn't a sure thing. Not everybody thought that his college exploits would translate equally to the pros. Russell, I mean, back did, but not everybody. He made a deal with, uh, so Red Auerbach got Walter Brown to make a deal with Lester Harrison. You, I will give you the ice capades if you give me your draft rights to, to number that pick. That's how they got the pick. And it was St. Louis. He still had to deal with St. Louis. St. Louis was then, if you, as, as too many, as so many people know, quote the northernmost southern city in America. Right. Segregation was not official, but it was de facto. He was not. They were not interested in in, in drafting a black player. And so, and uh, this is 1956. We're talking right. 1956 America. And so the Celtics made a deal with the Hawks. They had a prize that St. Louis would want. Ed McCauley, easy Ed McCauley from St. Louis University, Billikens, uh, was a, a fine NBA player, an all-star, uh, finesse finesse center. He could score, not a great rebounder. Uh, but he was a native, and, and he was a wonderful guy, and they loved him. Yeah. And they accepted Ed McCauley and the draft rights to a kid from Kentucky named Cliff Hagen, who had just come out of the army in those days, guys, you know, he just about two years in the army after be after coming out of Kentucky. And that, that was the pick for the rights to draft Russell. That's how the Celtics drafted Bill Russell in 1956. What about Will Chamberlain? What about, what about Chamberlain? He, he, he dominated for a while, but those matchups with, with Russell were legendary. Will Chamberlain, of course, was a, a, a well-known high school star at Overbrook High in Philadelphia Surprised the world by going to Kansas, not sticking around the East in those days. With guys mostly tended to stick geographically at home in those days. He went to Kansas, and and he and he, and he was a sensation. He changed basketball, and 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 uh, the 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 uh, uh, free throw lane was widened first by George Mikan from six to twelve, and then by Chamberlain from twelve to eight, sixteen. Uh, and also, when he was a, a freshman in those days, he had freshman didn't have. Varsity eligibility as a freshman, you had to play freshman basketball. They they had an inbounds play where they threw the ball up over the backboard for him to stuff it from <laughs> out of bounds. Well, everybody in the, in, the, in the rivalry could know that we could just put chicken wire up there and prevent him doing that. But they didn't want him to do that at Kansas at home. Well, they got the rule passed. You could you can't you, you could no longer throw the ball up over the backboard. But he was a dominant player, absolutely. And in 1957, they went to the. Uh, NCAA finals against Carolina, the undefeated Carolina team, and were beaten in triple overtime. Uh, in, 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 but he was known he was going to be the greatest, the next great thing. And he comes out in 1959, 60, and, you know, and scores in that year probably about 38 points a game, I believe. And, you know, three years later, he scores a record 50.4 points a game. And, uh, um, but he was there first. He was there, and Russell was already there. Their first meeting was, uh, uh, of course, Ballyhood, you can imagine. And, uh, Bob Cousy stole the show. Six foot four and one, but the great Bob Cousy stole the show that night. I have Celtics won. Over the course of their history uh, in those 142 games, yes, the Celtics won the majority of the games. Russell dominated the statistics, almost two to one edge in, in uh, uh, points and, and, and uh, an edge in rebounds. But Russell's team won the majority of the games and they totally respected each other. Russell, Russell, uh, Russell was the big deterrent to Will 
compared to anybody else. But there were nights he couldn't stop him either. And 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 but basically he's the only one that could generally somewhat neutralize Bill Russell, who was four inches taller and, and, and God knows how many pounds heavier. Name you mentioned earlier, Red Arbach, legendary. Well, Red was a figure from the NBA from 1946. Interesting guy, Brooklyn guy, went to uh, George Washington University and uh, fell under the spell of, of a coach who uh, was espoused the uh, fast break style of basketball. He went in the Navy. Yeah, he was a, he was in the Navy and he met a lot of guys. He came out in 1946 when the Basketball Association of America, the four, which was later would merge with the National Basketball League to form the current NBA. He was a 28 year old who talked his way into the job of coaching the Washington Capitals in this new league with with a, a owner named uh, Mr. Uline, and he talked his way into it. And and he he was a brash guy and very smart. But he told him, I can get you players. I have contacts from service. And indeed he did, including a, one of the early great players in the NBA, Bob Fierick, F-E-E-R-I-C-K. Uh, and, and his first year, they won the regular season of the BAA. They lost in the playoffs. Well, he coached there for a few years. And then he went to the Tri-Cities Hawks. And Ben Kerner was the owner. Mm-hmm. Well, that didn't work out too well. And Kerner fired him. Red was actually unemployed for a brief period of time. And then in 1950, the Celtics were in need of a coach. And uh, Walter Brown, the owner, who had been the original owner of the Celtics and was a hockey guy who owned the Boston Arena, I mean, it was in Boston Garden, uh, but knew nothing really about the intricacies of basketball. He consulted some local pundits. Who should I coach? One of them was the sports editor of the Boston of Boston paper, Sam Cohen. <laughs> that's, how, that's the world it was in 1950. Oh, you want this guy Auerbach? Okay, I'll hire him. So he hires Red Auerbach in 1950. Well, the rest is history. Red Auerbach became the, the first the coach until 1966. And, and it was the general manager concurrent with that for many years. And then the president until he died in 2006. He was the emblem, em, emblematic of the Boston Celtics. One, the, probably the single most towering figure, non-playing his figure in the history of the NBA. You're, you're in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And I know you've, you've also covered... The, the the NCAA Final Four, it, it, which which of the two is in better shape today, the NBA or college basketball? Well, college, bas- college basketball is in complete chaos and turmoil, and we do not know how it's going to shake out. This combination of the name, image, and likeness, image and likeness the NIL, oh. and the transfer portal, and what the what what the NIL has unlocked, which is money, money being available to pay players in in, in a certain way. And and then the transfer portal, which is which means that over the over in the old days you had to sit out an entire year when you transferred. It was a very big deterrent to transferring. Now you can transfer, um, you know, without a sitting out at least until further notice. Not to mention when COVID hit, guys were granted an extra year of eligibility, and they're still some of these guys are in their sixth year of eligibility. It's it's and and then all this transfer, uh, all this conference re- upheaval, as they all chase the money. All mm-hmm. taste the TV money and the, and the conference money, and it all stems from football. Football is driving the engine. Basketball is in the caboose. And certain two basketball conferences of note were, were completely hijacked by football. One was the ACC. It still is. The other is the Big East, which is now we invented themselves in a, in a – it's a good conference. But what the future is going to be in this NIL thing, I don't know. College sports are in complete turmoil right now. When you get to the Final Four and you get the Final Four teams, I have been going to the Final Four since 19 19- – 
80, my first one in College Park, Maryland, 70, excuse me, 70 and in College Park, Maryland. And and I was there as recently as last year. I still go because I'm a fan, even though I retired in 2012. It's one of my great, great loves. You get there and it's the same. You know, the, the, the people root for those teams. Last year, we had those great, uh, you know, upheaval teams and, and uh, out, of, out of the ordinary teams. It's still the same. But how long it's going to last, I don't know. Now, one reason that Charlie Baker, former governor of Massachusetts, was hired as the NCAA commissioner was in the hopes that his political clout and connections and savvy could help them secure some kind of national legislation to govern the, the name, image, and likeness. Because right now we've got 50 separate entities with each state having its own rules, if you will, or its own regulations, and it's completely unwieldy. College is in complete turmoil right now in football and basketball. And the tentacles extend to all the sports. I mean, when these yeah. conferences expand from coast to coast, is a volleyball team and, and Rutgers going to play UCLA? They're going to, they're going to, what? And yet they're in the same, you know, this is madness. The NBA, it's under some, you know, they're, they're in, eh, now we got this in season tournament. I don't know how that's going to work out. I'm not, in fa- I'm not crazy about that. I, I, I don't see the need for it, but Adam Silver is determined. He thinks this is some kind of thing that we're going to latch on to the way that international soccer works. I don't know. But so the NBA is not in turmoil, but it's in flux. But the competition, hey, this year, there's a lot of good teams. And and there's no certainty. There's no Denver's the defending champ. God bless them. Wonderful. They're not the prohibitive favorites to repeat. There's there's, there's at least a half a dozen teams in, in both conferences that can win, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. I, I got to jump back for just a second because it, it, it struck me. Did, did you happen to see the HBO show about the Lakers winning time? And did you did you see that at all? And, my, and the way opinion. they what I want to get to is the way they portrayed Jerry West. I thought was really unfair. I've long I've been on record from day one. Jerry West had every right to sue. I, I wish he could uh, win. It was reprehensible. That 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 show was a falsehood. It was a reprehensible misrepresentation of a Jerry West. Most likely, his reputation was was just to damage. B Jerry Buss, the late Jerry Buss. Do you think for one second that the person that John C. Rowley so colorfully portrayed would have been able to earn a dime in real life, rather than, as opposed to millions of dollars to buy a team? They portrayed him as a buffoon. Yeah. You couldn't take that man seriously. That was criminal. What he did to Larry Bird wasn't criminal, but it was disrepresented. And and Auerbach, too, there was a totally fictional scene up in the box with Auerbach that was completely fictional. And and and, and it it was disgusting. I, I hated every second of it. And and uh, and and really they it, it was criminal. I'm so glad it was canceled. Yeah, I think everybody's been around basketball feels the same way you do. All right, Larry Bird, you 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 wrote a book about him and and with him, and, and Magic Johnson. There, there's another rivalry we should talk about. Yes, we had a front row seat, and it's one of yes, and it's one of total mutual respect. When I was privileged to write Larry Bird's book with him, uh, we solicited Magic to write the forward, and he eagerly complied and wrote a wonderful forward. They have utter mutual respect they saw in each other the uh, the the right way to play basketball and Ma- I, I, magic was you know more, a little bit more athletically gifted although not tremendously more than people realize and uh, but uh, they saw they totally respected each other and 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 became our friends and i know that the day that larry chose to retire in in in, in the summer of 2002 he he called magic among right away among others 
I was privileged to get a phone call from Larry that day too, but magic got one too. Uh, and, and they have enormous mutual respect and, and, uh, it, 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 it's, it's the way life you like to think it is. It, it really is. It's nice. Yeah. The, uh, the rivalry at, at that point with the Lakers and the Celtics, there, there were so many different rivalries during those, the, those years yes. in the NBA, Detroit and, 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 and the Celtics, the Celtics. And you had the bulls in a rivalry with, uh, with uh, Detroit. Yes. So, so many great players during that. Era. It was a different game. Right, it was a different game, more physical. Well, it's a different game. The three-point shot has altered the game. It's changed it. The nature of what it takes to win now is different than it was, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even up to 2010. It's different now, and uh, that that's true. But the rivalries, uh, they you know, you hope to get them. They're circumstantial. In my time covering the Celtics from '69, we had three major rivalries. Really, the major that one. The Knicks in the early 70s. It was tremendous. Mm. It was a wonderful atmosphere in both buildings. 76ers ongoing, uh, going back to the Wilt and Russell, and then picking up when Bird and Dr. J were the central figures. That was a fine rivalry. Larry, I know, admired, loved that rivalry very much. And then, of course, the Lakers ongoing, you know, going back to the 60s uh, when the Celtics won six times over them. And then finally, the Lakers broke through in 85, Kareem winning at age 37 or eight in Boston and and saying, I feel like Johnny Padres, which only we baseball fans would recognize was the proper, you know, being he being a Brooklyn, a, a New York born baseball fan. That was his first love, you know, baseball. Um, and and now, of course, then later on with 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 uh, the Kobe and it was Shaq and Kobe, and they finally in 08, finally the Celtics played them again. That's been the ongoing rivalry. Those are the four big Celtic rivalries. They had a good one with the Pistons for a couple of years there. Yes, no question. But uh, uh, we've we've had these rivalries. Right now, they're lacking a major rival. Maybe this year, you know, Milwaukee will become a, a, a major rival. Certainly, they appear to be the two premier teams in the East, and we'll see how that shakes out. How much credit should Michael Jordan get for the popularity um, of the NBA? Tremendous credit. Bird and Magic set the table, but Michael took it over the top. There is no question. The, the Chicago Bulls and Michael became international sensations. I mean, I know the Celtics were too. When we went to Spain in 1988 in the McDonald's, uh, Larry Bird was, was you know, it, it was a sold-out arenas and sold-out signing books and everything else. Oh, yeah. But Michael Jordan, there's no question. Michael Jordan is is is, is the seminal figure there. Uh, he he took it over the top, uh, and 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 David Stern was able to exploit this. And um, let me say this about David Stern: even Larry Larry Bird at the time said he he recognized that you needed a form. You could be a great player, but you needed a form. And and he he recognized that David Stern was at the helm of a of a uh, an enterprise that that showcases talents as to the max. And and certainly that was totally true. With Michael Jordan, but there is no question that that uh, Michael Jordan propelled the NBA into into international world. That and the Dream Team together, and and uh, but certainly the Bulls, no question. I want to draw a comparison here, and let's see if it works. Larry Bird's court awareness. Now you talked about Magic being more athletic, but Larry Bird's court awareness. I wonder if that would compare to Wayne Gretzky's mm-hmm. awareness on the ice, because they. Besides scoring, they they were playmakers. Funny you mentioned that. You know, they once were co-cover boys of a of a Time magazine story, and Bird, who would not remotely qualify as as a knowledgeable hockey person, 
recognized Gretzky. I don't know that Gretzky recognized. Well, I can, I'll give you an example though, where he probably did. I know how much Larry respected Gretzky and talked about Gretzky with me and others during that time. He recognized what was going on. They were concurrent. One night, circa, it was 1987. Celtics are playing routine game against the Bucks, And in the first period, Larry got heated with one of the referees. He wound up getting himself thrown out. He got thrown out a couple of times in his career. And Fred Roberts, as I recall, went on, had a great game, and Celtics won the game anyway. What Larry was distraught to find out, was just, just completely freaked out after the game. Guess who was in the first row of the game, uh, seats that night? Wayne Gretzky. The, the Oilers were in town on that Wednesday night to play the Celtics, uh, to play the, Bull, the Bruins on Thursday night, and Gretzky had come to see Larry. Larry was, he was, he was just, oh my, I can't believe it. I got myself thrown out. But yes, they had a total mutual respect, and and you're right. They were the same person. Not the most athletically gifted. Not he, Gretzky wasn't the fastest skater. wasn't the, wasn't the strongest guy. But he had the greatest eyesight, the greatest uh, anticipation, the greatest sense of how to play this game. And and Larry was comparable in basketball. They were. And 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 uh, that that Time Magazine story was was certainly apt. I want to give you two words that might set you off: load management. I don't get it. Um, and when travel today is so much better than it was in the old days, we used to get up at 5.30 for the 7, uh, 6, we, you know, all the time. I travel with them, you know, and at 6 o'clock, they get the they get out on the bus at 7, they go to the airport, they go to, and, and these guys travel in luxury in, in charter flights. I never flew a charter flight with the Boston Celtics. And, and the only team that did in my time in the beginning was the Knicks. And then later on, the, the Pistons started the whole charter flight craze in, in the late 80s. But these guys, they play in five-star hotels. They live in five-star hotels. They travel great. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of this. This is, I, I don't get it. I just do not get it. And, and, and uh, you know, these, and, and it's wrong. And I'm glad that league is addressing it because, you know, paying customers deserve better. And, and, uh, and, and it's just wrong. So, I I I uh, I'm 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 a big opponent of of load management. What what about uh, what about LeBron James? Oh, LeBron James! I I'm, I it bothers me that that there's these haters out there. There, as a basketball player, I'm not talking about any personal stance or any you know a, he's not a politician, but you know anything he's done. What is he? He's a he's never been in the newspaper for the wrong reason ever ever. Okay, which is nice because a lot of guys. B, if you go back to the documentary that was done when he was at St. Vincent St. Mary, when we were kings, I think I was called, whatever it was called, I saw it. And that eight, seven, 16, 17 year old, 18 year old LeBron was all about one thing in the midst of, 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 of a team. Everyone knew he was the best player, he knew he was the best player. But he did not ignore his teammates. He did not belittle his teammates. He appreciated his teammates. He rooted for his teammates. He wanted to win with those guys, some of whom he had played with since fifth grade. He's always been about team. He's a team player. His actions on the court are all geared toward one thing, winning the game. He's not a selfish player. And, and I'll frame it this way. The difference between his greatness in his era and Michael's greatness in his era. Michael Jordan, in my this is my Bob Ryan's take. Michael Jordan ascended to the top of, of the mountain in the, in the, in the uh, uh, 80s by because he, it took him a while to accept that he needed to share. That the 1980, 70, excuse me, the 19, 
87 Jordan wasn't making those passes that the 19 early 90s Jordan was making to uh, Jim Paxson and Steve Kerr to get key baskets in Bulls victories in the playoffs. He wasn't making that pass. He didn't know enough that he 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 was I won't say he was selfish, but he he, he was self-centered and 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 he learned to share and and how to draw the teammates in. The, by contrast, LeBron James is so deferential that as late as the 1911 finals against the, the, the Mavericks, or even in night, the one before against the Celtics, he ran from the ball. He quit on the Celtics I, against them. And, again, the, and against the Mavericks, he didn't want the ball as much. He didn't demand it. He didn't acknowledge that he's the best player on the floor and act accordingly. After that, he did. He, he, that was his epiphany. And from then on, the championships flowed. And, 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 and who knows, maybe one more is coming. And he is all about team. And why people can't recognize that in his actions on the court, I don't understand. I don't understand LeBron James haters. Hey, get over the decision. That was stupid. You know, the fact that he's made amends for that. It's over. That was, you know, how long ago? It was 13 years ago. Get over it. I mean, Michael Jordan is a treasure. If you love basketball and you don't expect and love Michael Jordan, then you're a phony. I'm sorry. He's a wonderful player. Yeah. And, You've been very generous with your time, but I need a couple more minutes from you no to problem. talk about your other love, baseball. Yes. You, well, your, your last book was about baseball, right? Absolutely. It's coming out. It's called In Scoring, Scoring Position with Bill Chuck. It's about my 44 years of score books. I've scored basically every game that I've been to, and I mean been to in the stands or in the press box, uh, anywhere in America since 1977, opening day. Uh, and all the stuff that is involved in there, all the trivia, all the history, all the fun stuff, all the oddities, blah, 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 blah. Bill Chuck and I have explored these things. Um, I grew up as a baseball person. My father was involved in minor league baseball with the Trenton Giants of the Gresby Interstate League when I was a lad. Supposedly, I was at every home game in the 1950 Trenton Giants season. And that means I was there when Willie Mays made his organized baseball debut. I would grow up, uh, wake up in the morning in my six, seven, eight, nine-year-old years. Uh, my father would, on Sunday say, we're going to New York. We're going to Philadelphia. We're going to Polo Grounds. We're going to Shide Park, uh, MX Stadium. So baseball's in my blood, totally and utterly in my blood. Uh, basketball was my passport as a writer. And I love basketball. And I played it. And I played it better than I played baseball and I longer. But um, and, and I'm grateful everything that's happened in basketball. But my first love, I, my you know, was, was always baseball. Yes. If, if I'm allowed an editorial comment, I wish there was a David Stern Type running baseball. Yeah, it'd be nice. Well, I'm not I'm not anti. Yeah. Now Dave, now I'm I'm a bit of a I, I don't I see the objections to Rob Manfred and but kind of the groundwork was laid by Bud Selig, who I like personally, and I'm kind of ambivalent, almost want to recuse myself. No commissioner in baseball ever loved baseball more than Bud Sealy, but that doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes. And yeah. the blind eye toward toward the steroids, which I ignored myself, was bad. Uh the the this the fealty to television you know uh one of the greatest atrocities in baseball is sunday night baseball the world doesn't need sunday night baseball you know i mean fargo you're watching the game but i mean fan baseball should be played in the daylight on weekends period there should and and, and sunday night sunday night baseball is terrible first as a season ticket holder the celtic or the red sox since 1981 i hate these sunday night games hate them you know they're not they're, i don't want them but i've dealt with them but yeah but uh, David Stern was a brilliant commissioner. He wasn't perfect, obviously. The dress code thing backfired on him, but but that was minor. The important stuff he saw, 
and I, I I love David Stern. I respect David Stern. And and if every commissioner were David Stern, all all the sports world would, would be better. Put you on the spot. Who you got in the World Series? I I'm I'm so utterly neutral, but I'm going to just going to go parochial American League. And I have nothing against the Diamondbacks at all. And I respect what they've done. Uh, um, but uh, it, it's fun to root. And I I'll, I'll pull, but I won't be devastated if they don't win. I, my original pick when it started. I was backing the Orioles. Yeah. I like that story, despite the ownership, by the way. Right. Because of right. the team and, and, and Brandon Hyde. A lot. And then, okay, now the Phillies, my childhood second team. I was a Giant fan, New York Giants. But but I grew up 30, 40 miles from Philadelphia, County Mac Stadium, went there many times, and I, I picked the Phillies. And what they did to them by shutting down those first four batters, one for 28 in the last two games, they deserve all the credit in the world. Give them the credit. I have nothing against them. So – I'll be cool, but I'll, I'll pull a little bit for the for the Rangers, uh, you know, on the basis of American League. And, you know, Bochy's a great manager and uh, um, yeah, for sure. But but I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch. Don't worry as much as I can. Last story. Tell you tell you no hitter story. Well, I have been going to baseball since, you know, as I told you, since I was four years old and I have never been in attendance in a professional baseball. No hit, no run game. I've been in tennis at one no hit one run game, which is a 1986 uh, 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 Joe Crowley of the White Sox out in Anaheim threw a, a no hitter with one run in which he walked seven and it was the ugliest, sloppiest, ugliest no hitter with line drives all over the place that you ever saw. But it was not a no hit no run game. The last no hit no run game was thrown by a prep school right hander in 1983 named Pete Thurston at Lawrenceville School against Del Barton Academy. That's the last no hitter I saw. I have been present for ninth inning. Close calls, most notably David Cohn, you know, you know, in 1981. Um, I mean, Mike Messina, excuse me, against David Cohn, Red Sox in 1981, uh, 91, excuse me. Right. Uh, uh, Labor Night night, two outs, ninth inning, the odious Carl Everett up, Carl Everett, and, he, and he plops one into the outfield to spoil Messina's no uh, perfect game, and uh, that's the closest I've come. But uh, so, you know, it's funny, Jerry, every time someone throws a no hitter, I think somewhere in the stands, there's some guy who is meeting his old friend from, you know, that he met in England, who's seeing his first baseball game or her first first baseball game. And they're seeing a no hitter and I can't get to see a no hitter. That bothers me. <laughs> I tell you what, you, you've had a life of memories. You've had a life of thrills. And you've been gracious enough to share them with so many readers, so many people that you've come across on television or on radio or in podcasts like this. A legend. And we can't thank you enough for your time, Bob Ryan. Well, thank you. But believe me, it's a life of no heavy lifting. And I'm grateful, very grateful that society allows me to do that when I have no other discernible skills <laughs> other than words. So I, that's, a, that's a gift. Thank you. That's a great skill. The great... Bob Ryan, legendary Bob Ryan, Hall of Fame writer. So this has been uh, On the Record with me, Jerry Truppiano. I want to thank our producer, Dave D'Agostino, and we hope you'll uh, give us five stars and uh, remember us along the way and catch us the next time around. So for Bob Ryan and Dave D'Agostino, I'm Jerry Truppiano. So long, everybody. Bob, outstanding. Thank that was you fun, so Jerry. much. That was, that was really nice. Thank I'm you. sorry about tying you up earlier, but... Uh, 